Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. Welcome to episode 149 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, my wife and I get back into our Philippians Bible study, where we're going through chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. We look at what it means to not grumble or complain, but to shine like stars in a perverse and crooked generation. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on our Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, as you can tell, I'm still feeling a little bit under the weather. I don't know what's happening, but just please be in prayer for me and my health. Uh, Also, please be in prayer for um, my book that I've been writing. I'm seven-eighths of the way done. So that's that's, uh, pretty encouraging, at least done with the... uh, the actual content, um, still got to do artwork and formatting and do all the audio um, versions of the chapters. So yeah, anyway, uh, be in prayer for that. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK and Kurt and Donald, Dan and Cindy, all the Omega Frequency family. We just did a another Uh, Ready with an Answer episode, so you should be able to catch that on the Omega Frequency podcast here very soon, so go check that out. All right, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into episode So this week is going to be really dependent on the stuff we talked about last week, uh, working out our salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who's at work in us, both to will and work for his good purposes. So um, if you didn't see that message, I'm not asking you to pause it or stop this and watch last week. But when you're done with this, watch last week. Yeah. Um, That'd be good because we go into a lot lot of connections between um, Roman stuff and what Paul is talking about. Not Romans, but like Caesar, Roman kind of stuff. Anyway, this week, Paul's, it seems like he's moving more into Jewish connections and Jewish analogies. uh, And we're going to really get into that now. So a little bit of context. I'm going to start reading up here 12 through 13, and then our passage will be 14 through 18. So then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Verse 17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. 
you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. All right, just going to start the first couple of words. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Okay, this first word, uh, uh, gaguzmos, comes from uh, gaguzo. Gaguzo. It's an onomatopoetic. It's an onomatopoeia word, basically. All right? I don't know what that other word is, but it's a sound word. So basically, that's an onomatopoeia with this Greek word. Gaguzo. It's, It's supposed to sound like a grumble. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Yeah. All right. This grumbling or murmuring. All right. It's kind of funny. There are several Greek words like that that are onomatopoeias. Um, but uh, what it's getting at is um, showing this smoldering discontent. And it's not so much toward each other as it is with God. That's kind of what he's getting at. Not so much grumbling with each other, but grumbling with God. And then the next word, this disputing, basically means uh, reasoning that's self-based and therefore confused. Especially it contributes to reinforcing uh, others in discussion to remain in their initial prejudice. One of the ways you can think about this um, this uh, disputing term is some of the some of the Pharisees or scribes that are um, trying to argue with Jesus that they already have determined in their mind what the right answer is. And it's not so much an, an emotional rejection as it is an intellectual rejection. The grumbling is more of an emotional rejection. So you have the heart and the head uh, in terms of a rejection toward God. And I really want to get, I wanted to get at this passage last time, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, but I saved it for this week because I think it works out a lot better with the whole grumbling and, and disputing um, charge that Paul is telling us to stay away from. All right, so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10. And we're going to read quite a bit of it, 14 verses. And I'm going to pause along the way as we read it. All right, so let me put it up on the screen. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all baptized under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. I'm going to pause real quick. So that's the first three verses. Paul is obviously making a reference to the Exodus. And he's saying, hey, our, our fathers, just like we were baptized in changing our allegiance from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's son, they were baptized too. They had the, the cloud of God with them. And we have like the Holy Spirit baptized in the Holy Spirit as well. Verse three, they all ate the same spiritual food, that manna, right? We're eating the body of Christ. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Verse four, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them. And that rock was Christ. Well, we eat the body and blood of Christ, basically, when we are celebrating communion with him. All right. And nevertheless, Verse five, with most of them, God was not well pleased 
for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now they were saved by grace through faith, right? They were saved by grace through faith. It's God, God's mighty hand and outstretched arm. That's bringing all the plagues on Pharaoh. That's dividing the sea, all that stuff. Now their faith had to be coupled with God's grace because they had to do what God said, which would be like killing the lamb, putting the blood over the door doorpost. Uh, they were supposed to ask the Egyptians, right, for jewelry and stuff. They pillaged the Egyptians and they left, they fled. So by grace through faith, they were delivered. But then um, stuff happened, right? Why was God not well pleased with most, most of them? Why were most of them laid low in the wilderness and not, not able to make it to the promised land? Well, verse six says, these things happened as an example for us. What's up? Andrew says, get your flax right. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Thanks, man. I can, there. I can appreciate that for sure. <laughs> uh, verse six, now these things happen as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. All right, you remember them saying, we want meat, right? We need water. We want meat. We, it would be better for us if we would go back to Egypt. All right, so this is not good. And because of these cravings that they had, um, it led them to some very, very destructive actions. Um, yeah, that were widespread, all right? And he's, remember, he's saying this is an example for us. This is them working out their salvation. They're not in the promised land yet. And remember, only two of them get into the promised land that were from that original generation. Uh, two of the people over 20, at least, get into the promised land, Caleb and Joshua. So uh, what's going on there? Well, verse seven, do not, let me put this on the screen. I'm sorry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Let's think about that scene. That's from Exodus 32. Remember Moses had gone up uh, on Mount Sinai to go get the 10 commandments. And he was up there a long time, many, many days. And what did the people start doing? Started worshiping idols. Before before they started worshiping idols. Grumbling. They started grumbling at Aaron, Aaron. about Moses. Moses and God. All right? This grumbling, getting fed up with God. And so, you know, even though the second commandment is you, sh you shall not uh, create idols, make a graven image in the form of anything, they do it right there. And it's really interesting. They say it's a festival to Yahweh, but they're worshiping God by committing idolatry, worshiping God in a manner that he says is messed up. And what led them to that jacked up form of um, worship, that blasphemous worship basically, was started with grumbling. Let's keep going. Nor let us act immorally, Numbers 25, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. That's the Balaam thing, where Balaam couldn't curse them, right? He wasn't allowed to curse them, so he basically got them to curse each other um, by bringing the, uh, the pagans there toward them, and they started intermingling with the Israelites, and the Israelites then started taking some of those women 
and then began to um, worship the same gods, um, the same false gods, and brought a curse upon themselves. Horrible, horrible stuff. You remember, like Phineas has to uh, stop that. All right, but 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord. Numbers 21, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Go check that one out. Nor uh, grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You have to remember the destroyer, that's a reference to the destroying angel. Um, the Passover, all right? So I forgot to put this on the screen. I'm sorry, y'all. But this, nor let us grumble. You can see that in Numbers 13, 14, and 16. And 13 and 14 is basically they've been in the promised land. Or sorry, sorry, excuse me. They've been out of Egypt just a couple of months. And now God's going to bring them into the promised land. But they send 12 spies into the land. The spies come back giving a negative report. 10 of the 12. And um, they grumble together against the Lord. And they decide we're not going to do it. And so that's 13 to 14. And God puts a whole lot of people to death. But then chapter 16, and you would think this generation that, you know, from 14 to 16 had learned a lesson. Verse 16, they are grumbling again, particularly against Moses. They're like, why should you be our leader? We're priests just like you. We can serve God too. We don't need you to be our leader. This is um, some really horrible stuff. I'd encourage you to read chapter 16. It is an incredibly scary passage. If you can try to put yourself in that scene um, where God causes the earth to open its mouth and swallow thousands of people and close it over them so that they go down into Sheol alive. Not just the people that were complaining, but their wives, their kids, and their possessions and animals. Everything just crazy stuff going on. And then the people complain after that. It's just crazy, crazy how this grumbling against the Lord, um, rejecting his will, his purpose for their lives, viewing him as evil, um, as not good, whatever, it leads to just incredible amount of destruction and then missing out on God's purpose for them. Kind of like I believe in Luke 7, where you had these, uh, Jesus talking about John the Baptist, and then Luke comes in and he talks about how the Pharisees who refused to be baptized by John rejected God's purpose for themselves. And like God wanted them to be baptized in this baptism of repentance. He wanted them to be able to experience uh, becoming a part of God's forever family by giving their lives to his Messiah, his son. Um, and uh, they rejected that. It's really crazy. Brian says uh, it would have been quiet after that. Um, I would have been quiet. I would have been quiet after, yeah, yeah. you know, for sure. For sure. Uh, now, jumping back into this real quick, it said again, verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example. Again, they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. 
God's trying to bring us into his real promised land. Those things are not for us to look back on and say, those idiots, those idiots. No, it's to look upon ourselves and be like, I do the same things. I, and I need to learn from that. All right, so verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. This temptation to grumble against God, like God is not good, like God's purposes are not good, God's not for us, all that kind of stuff. The temptation to really believe that and then grumble about it. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Grumbling is naturally going to lead to idolatry. It's going to lead to us either viewing ourselves as our Savior or a different God as our Savior, but it's a rejection of God as God, and um, that's where it ultimately can lead to as it hardens our heart, and therefore we need to flee from, from idolatry. Uh, Jude comments on this as well. I'm just going to put this up real quick. This is Jude verse 5. Remember, no chapters in Jude. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And Jude makes a comparison throughout his letter as well, basically saying like these things happen for our instruction. And when he talks about the angelic rebellion, when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, um, he's, he's, he's talking about these people that got saved. But then the previous verses before, uh, before five, I think it's in verse three, it's talking about people that have crept in, but uh, ungodly people marked for destruction uh, who have denied their only master who bought them. So these people had their master, but then they rejected their master. And one of the ways that th that, that happens is through this grumbling against God. And it's, it's interesting. You see Jesus like argue, not argue, but dialogue with God in like a, I, I want to get out of this situation. If there's any way for you to um, remove this cup from me, please do it. Like he's, He's pleading with God to not have to go through the cross, but you never see him change the way he feels about his father. Like he knows his father is good. He knows God's will is good. And that's why he ultimately submits to God's will. Not my will, your will be done. Right. And so we can dialogue with God like that. You see David doing that in the Psalms. So that's where this is different. This grumbling is more like you are evil. You are bad. Your purpose is wrong kind of stuff. And that's not usually something that first comes out of our mouth. It, it's what comes out of our heart first. So we really got to check that, especially when things are, um, are tense. You got anything on your mind, Steph? I've been just rambling. No, I mean, the grumbling stuff, I mean, as a parent you know, every every parent has given instructions to their kid and then had them grumble afterward. Like this, 
complaining and, um, you know, I don't see the point in this kind of attitude. And um, I think that at, now that I'm a parent, you know, versus when I was a kid, I see how disrespectful it is and how ungrateful it is because, you know, we think about all that we do for our kids and all that we provide for them and how, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're not asking that much from them. So when we do ask for it to be done, we want it to be done, you know, quickly and efficiently and without arguing. And when I compare that to my relationship with God, it's like, he's done so much for us. And he asks us to do things. And granted, some of the things he asks us to do don't make any sense. You know, like it, if God tells you to go to a land and, you know, it, it kind it makes sense rationally to be like, let's go send some people, see what the place looks like. Let's, let's scope the place out. Um, but God calls us to do things that from a worldly perspective don't make sense. And, you know, sometimes we listen and sometimes we don't. And when we don't listen, a lot of times we miss out on some really great stuff. Like, you know, the rest of uh, the Israelites didn't get to go into the promised land. And I mean, that's such a crazy thought that they just, you know, missed out on something so huge just because of a lack of trust. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they did have the cloud by day, the fire by yeah. night, and the angel of the Lord leading the way out in front. And they had everyday pro miraculous provision of bread, uh, manna, and they had this stream following them everywhere, water coming out of a rock. They had so many to us that would be like obvious manifestations of the goodness of God. And I think it's weird how things become commonplace to us. How, how quickly these blessings that to some people would be like obvious, like we've been to Mozambique five times or four times. I don't know. We've been a lot. Four or and, five. And I like you, uh, if you brought one of the people from the mission, the native um, people from Merrimayu into our house, they'd be like, you guys complain? Like, yeah. what is this air conditioning thing? You know, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Yeah. But how quickly would someone from Mozambique grow to become like us? Yeah. Having it every day. Yeah. I don't know. We don't, like, yeah, whatever it is, we're going to get um, callous to it. We're going to get jaded and not appreciate what we have, no matter what level that is. And I think it's important to take stock of what you have. And um, even if you are the, the person living in Mozambique, and there's still blessings. It's not because we live here and we have a different standard of living. Like God is providing blessings on a regular basis. And it has, it's not as dependent on our physical, uh, on the things that the world might view as blessings. But, you know, we need to be thankful for all that we have. Yeah. So do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. I'm going to look at each of those words pretty quickly. But this prove yourselves, you know, 
Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves. It's basically like the whole work out your salvation. The end goal is to look like Christ. And one of the ways we do that is by choosing the right things. Like these trials that we're going through, look at them with, with joy because they're, they're refining us. Uh, as James talks about as, uh, in chapter one of his letter, as Paul writes about in Romans chapter five. All right. We need to do the right thing in the, in the trials. But let's look at this. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, which means someone you can't find fault with. It's kind of like above reproach. And some of these will uh, be synonymous in a sense. Um, but above reproach. Uh, now, this is also something that Paul prayed about in chapter one. So their love would abound more and more so that they would be able to discern what is best and be innocent and blameless uh, at the day of Christ, all right? And that day of Christ language is gonna come soon. But it's interesting that he prays for them to grow in their love so that they would be able to live a blameless life. And now he's saying, don't grumble and murmur so that you will prove to be blameless and innocent. So it's, you can see like the Holy Spirit works with our actions, Paul is praying for us to be infused with more of that desire to be blameless. But we have to act on those promptings that God gives us. And one of the ways we do that is he's prompting us to grow in love and to discern what's best. But we have to choose in these trials, like 1 Corinthians 10 talks about, to when we're feeling like God isn't good, we have to remember to bring that thought under under God's control, uh, bring those thoughts under the obedience of Christ. No, God is good. The circumstance may not be good, but God can cause this to work out for good. So it's just stuff that we all struggle with every single day, all of us, but we got to try to put it into practice. And I know it's really hard to do that in the moment, but it's something we got to keep, keep working at and keep, keep working at. Because the situations around us are not really going to get a lot better. They're going to get worse. You know, our bodies are going to break down. I'm not, I'm not trying to be um, a Debbie Downer or whatever, but like our bodies are breaking down. Like we're not getting younger as the saying, you know, goes. And we're just going to be breaking down. Stuff breaks down around us. Society's breaking down. But God is still good. God has never changed in the midst of all of that. So we want to be blameless above reproach. So people aren't finding fault in us. Um, we also want to be innocent, which means not mixed. This is pure. Uh, not having uh, mixed motives. Uh, not um, being stained by the world. You can think about James chapter 1 when he says this is pure and undefiled religion uh, to take care of, to minister to widows and orphans in their time of need and to keep yourself from being stained by the world. You can think about Romans chapter 12, uh, verse one and two, when it talks about us being living sacrifices in light of God's mercy, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to him, holy and pleasing. This is our spiritual act of worship uh, so that we will be transformed not conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we have to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, that even the things that this world says are good and maybe 
Christian culture says is good, but when you compare that to the word of God and to the life of and ministry of Jesus, you're like, no, that's not right. I need to be not mixed with that. Mm. So um, something to keep in mind because when we be blameless and innocent, children of God in a crooked and perverse generation. All right, this crooked, scoliolis, sco, like, sorry, scolios, 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 like, like scoli- scoliosis. That's yeah. right. All right, drive from a primitive root, properly crooked or bent because dried out like a piece of parched wood, morally twisted, warped because they're lacking the oil of the Holy Spirit. So it's unacceptable to God, you know, like we were out picking out some, uh, some wood. I'm making, uh, so I've made these frames, these sound panels. That's like, I have three, like six, six and a half or seven foot by two and a half foot portable sound panels that I move around to basically have a, a, a vocal booth that I can move around. Uh, but I'm going to make some stationary ones for the wall behind us. I'm going to hang some of the guitars and put some sound absorbing panels up on the wall. You're giving well, a we were, lot uh, of detail. I know, just I know. To just to change things up, baby. Uh, so, <laughs> anyways, we were out picking out wood and out at Lowe's picking up wood, and uh, we we're looking at these one, one by two inch, eight foot pieces of wood, mm-hmm. and. If you just hold them by itself, you'd think they're straight. But if you put it up against something that's actually straight or against another piece, you can tell it's, it's there's some of them are, are warped. Some of them are bent. And it's like, I can't use this. I would like to. It's $1.88. But I can't use this one and toss it back. And so that's the thing about if you're living in a crooked generation where everything is crooked, you think crooked is straight. You got to have something that's straight to know when something's crooked. So it's not just crooked generation, but it's perverse too. Put that up there. Did you have something you want to say? No, I was just laughing at BDK. What BDK? TMI. Oh, it could get worse, BDK. I promise. He's (laughs) always has to give you a lot of backstory. (laughs) The gift of gab. It's not a spiritual gift. Not, not one that I'm familiar with. <laughs> uh, perverse, perverse generation. Uh, it's turned through into a new shape, which is distorted, perverted, the opposite of how it should be, twisting and, and corrupting something. So it's not just a little bit crooked, but it's actually like really perverted, twisted. You can think about the difference between the savior of Rome and the savior of the world. You can think about the difference between the gospel of Rome and the gospel of the world. Oh, sorry, the gospel of of our Lord Jesus. You can think about uh, Lord Jesus versus Lord Caesar. Mm -hmm. All these different terms, the peace of Rome versus the peace of God. It's not just a little crooked. It's completely perverted. I think um, like Jen's point right there is really good. And Andrew talks about plumb line. Um, It's important to be in the words so we know when someone is twisting scripture. You know, it was interesting last week, right after we finished the the Bible study, 
YouTube pulled up on my computer like something like, oh, you might like this. And it was some uh, minister uh, that was a um, like health and wealth, like prosperity gospel kind of minister. And I'm like, this is what you think I like? Okay. But we watched for a few minutes and we were like, there are that. I mean, you can see how many people are watching it live. And it was thousands of people just watching this live. And like the comments, yeah, the comments were so positive and reinforcing this. And it was like, just no script. I mean, he held his Bible the whole time. Didn't open it. We didn't watch for that long. So we could be wrong that maybe he did open it at some point, but we watched for a few minutes and he kept saying, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. And it was all about God wants to give you this. And he wants to give you this nice car. And he wants to give you all this money. And you already are healed. Yeah, you already you all this. And I was like, these people have, they're, they think they're at church, but they're hearing. You already are rich. You just got to believe it more. Yeah, they're just hearing this and they're believing it. And it's like, this is not, if this is what God wanted for us, then why wasn't, why didn't Jesus live this way? Or why didn't the disciples? I mean, these were people that were being completely faithful and giving their lives to to the cause of Christ. And if they weren't blessed that way, then why do we think that's what God wants for us? And I don't. It was just, you know, really disheartening to see how many people were so on board for that. And just, but it makes sense. I mean, I want to hear that I'm going to be successful in the eyes of the world. You know, everybody wants to hear that to some degree, but that's not truth. And we have to be so familiar with God's word that we can recognize when there are lies. Yeah. Because we're called to be like lights in the world. Mm. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. You know, um, frequently I will use an analogy uh, from uh, Psalm 119 with folks about God's word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. It's, uh, It's not like a floodlight necessarily. It's just Think about a lighter, but you're in the like the pitch pitch black forest out at camp or something or in the wilderness, backpacking like Wade and Jen. But uh, but it's pitch black, but you've got a lighter with you. Now that's not gonna help you like feel totally confident about the next mile in front of you, but it'll help you take the next step. And um Man, if you're in pitch black night and somebody has even a little light like that, it provides so much peace in the midst of anxiety. It provides clarity. It provides hope because you can see a little bit, you know. It provides um, confidence. And we're called to be like lights in a very dark world. Um, First Peter chapter two, I'm going to put this up. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from your fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's really interesting what Peter's doing there because he's coming back to Exodus chapter 19, where God told the Israelites, look, if you obey me, you're going to be a, my chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation from my own possession. And they would be like a light to the Gentiles, but they didn't. They didn't want to really reach out to the Gentiles at all, and they weren't obeying God. And so they missed out on this gift that God had given them. And Peter's saying, look, you guys, you get to, you get to fulfill this, this awesome privilege, this awesome opportunity to be lights in the world, to bring in the Gentiles to display God's marvelous light. Like we're lights in the world because Jesus is the light. Like Jesus says, I am the light of the world in John. And he says, you are the light of the world in Matthew. As we display him, we are the light of the world, right? And um, so how do we do that? How do we really shine as we should as lights in the world? Verse 16, you do that by holding fast the word of life, holding fast the word of life in the midst of a very messed up generation. Uh, I just want to put up this, uh, this passage from Second Timothy real quick. And that's not what I wanted to do. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than loving lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. They're not holding to the word of life. They're holding to a twisted and perverted, a crooked um, display uh, that is not, it's, it's a form of godliness. And they may have the Bible in their hand. They may say, this is my Bible. This is what I believe. We believe everything in it. They may say that. They may say that they're a Bible-believing Bible church. I honestly have heard every kind of church say that. <laughs> right. They may be Baptist, Everybody Methodist, Methodist. That they are they're, just a Bible-believing church. Right. I don't know. And yet, holding, holding fast in a way to a form of godliness, but denying God's power to really live out God's word 
holding, denying God's power to really be changed, to become like Christ. I want to read a early Christian quote, an early Christian quote about this holding fast to the word of life. And then I want to draw, because like when I read it the first time, this is from Irenaeus around 180. Now, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was the disciple of the apostle John. So he's like a spiritual grandson of, of the apostle John. When I read it first, I was like, Irenaeus, you tripping, bro. Like, I don't get this connection at all. But the more I thought about it, the more it made sense to me. And it may not make any sense to you. And if it doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. Let me know. Phil, you're tripping, just like Irenaeus. But maybe it'll make sense to you. It's a kind of interesting parallel. So here's Irenaeus. Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. In the first place, he believed that he was the maker of heaven and earth, the only God in the next, in the next place, that he would make his seed as the stars of heaven. That is why Paul, that is what Paul meant when he says, as lights in the world, quoting Philippians 2 there, shining as lights in the world. Righteously, therefore, having left his earthly kindred, he followed the word of God, walking as a pilgrim with the word, that he might afterwards have his abode with the word. Righteously, also the apostles, being of the race of Abraham, left the ship and their father, father and followed the word. Righteously, also do we, possessing the same faith as Abraham, taking up the cross as Isaac did the wood, we follow him. Now, I want you to think about what Irenaeus is saying. He's basically saying that Paul is coming back to the father of the Hebrew race, Abraham. And uh, how Abraham shown to the world what it looks like to be a follower of the word. And thus his children also shine to the world, display to the world what it looks like to be a follower of the word. Let's come back to like um, uh, Genesis 15, where God has already made his promise to Abraham that he's going to shine like a, a star or his descendants will shine like stars, right? Uh, but then he says it again in, in, and that was in 12, he says it again in 15, the word of the Lord took Abraham outside and he said, look up at the stars. So will your descendants be, right? The word of the Lord talks with Abraham. The word of the Lord walked through the blood as he made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham holding fast to the word of God. All right, kind of an interesting thing. And if you look at these, these words, to me, it's interesting. Uh, he's called to walk before me and be blameless. You remember that from Genesis 17. In the midst of a very crooked and perverse generation. If you have ever read the book of Jasher, it's like a, a much more detailed version of Genesis. So things like where the writer of Genesis may spend half a chapter. The book of Jasher is an apocryphal book. 
that? It's a pseudepigraphal book. Okay. But um, it's a book that the Old Testament references. Okay. Like with, with Joshua, with the sun standing still, it says, as it's written in the book of Joshua, or in the book of Jasher. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, there's also, I believe, there's a reference to Jasher as well. And how would somebody read this? Uh, online. Okay. Yeah. Pull it up. Read it. It's, um, it's a really interesting read. And Abraham plays a much bigger role in it in terms of the amount of words attributed to the life of Abraham in Jasher than it does in Genesis. And one of the things you see is that Abraham's dad, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but Abraham's dad was a, uh, a very high up servant of Nimrod. And um, when Abraham was born, there was a huge light shining in the sky and the magicians of Nimrod, kind of like you could think of a Pharaoh, magicians for Pharaoh, magicians for Nebuchadnezzar. Nimrod had a bunch of these guys too. And they saw this, this great star shining in, this, in the sky that basically like swallowed up four other great stars. And they said to Nimrod, Nimrod, this is a sign that um, Abraham, the, or Abraham's dad, that his seed, being Abraham, is going to destroy you, basically. His kingdom's going to um, take over your kingdom. Abraham's kingdom's going to be much greater than yours. And so Nimrod put a bounty on this little baby boy, Abraham. And so Abraham's dad took Abraham and his mom and a nurse and hid them in a cave. Basically, they stayed in this cave until, Nim, until Abraham was around 10 years old. And then Abraham got taken by his mom to live with Noah and Shem, which is really interesting. You should really read this book. It's, it's basically attributed by the Bible. The Old Testament views Jasher as true history. All right, not necessarily inspired, but true history. Um, so Abraham lives with Shem. Yeah, Matthew's quoting uh, the Bible where it says it. It's in Joshua 10, right? So uh, Abraham lives with Noah and Shem when he's 10 years old until he's like a grown man. So he gets discipled by Shem and Noah while the world with Nimrod is going to hell, basically. Just getting absolutely corrupt and perverse to where Abraham's seed is basically like his. And Noah obviously is a, like a great, 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 great grandparent of Abraham. But that line is the only line that's pure left on the earth. They're the only ones that aren't idol worshipers and intent on like going against God. Very interesting. Yeah, Kathy says it's on YouTube as well. You can listen to it. Yeah, that's right. All right, so Abraham is holding fast to the word of life. He's one of the only children really of God in the midst of a perverse generation. And he's shining as a light to the world, basically. And that star in Joshua kind of talks about it too, but he shines of what it actually looks like to be a person of faith. And you can see the author of Hebrews really uh, 
using Abraham quite a bit too. Uh, another way that you can think about uh, this holding fast, the word of life is like holding it forth, holding forth the word of life. So not just like holding on to, but shining it forth. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand and it gives light. So we need to let that light shine, hold fast, hold forth the word of life before all men so they may see the good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And what are that? What are those good works? What is that light? It is the Beatitudes, basically. Um, the Beatitudes sum it up really well. So I want you to read that for yourself. I got to skip forward for time's sake, and I apologize for that. But I really think ultimately, uh, more than the Abraham thing, um, like Irenaeus says, I think it's more Beatitudes. That's what it looks like to hold fast the word of life. Shine like a star. Now, let's get into some weird stuff. Uh, We'll go verse 16 and 17. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that's when Christ returns. And if you can't see it, we're right here. So then day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. So when Christ comes back, I want you to have worked out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've held fast to the word of life and you've held forth the word of life to the end. Um, You've become uh, who God intended you to be here. Verse 17, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So Dr. Constable's got a commentary on every book of the Bible. I'd encourage you to check that out on Study Light. But I'm going to read you his comments on this passage uh, being poured out as a drink offering, okay? The prospect that Paul might receive a death sentence soon arose again in his thinking. He described his present life as being poured out of a drink offering in Israel's worship. You can see 2 Timothy 4, 6. We're actually going to look at that in a little bit. Numbers 15, 1 through 10. Numbers 28, 4 through 7. After the priest offered a lamb, a ram, or a bull as a burnt offering, he poured wine beside the altar. This was the last act in the sacrificial ceremony, all of which symbolized the dedication of the believer to God in worship. The pouring out of the wine pictured the gradual ebbing away of Paul's life that had been a living sacrifice to God since his conversion. And so basically, even though Paul said in chapter one, you know, he is convinced that he's going to remain in the in in the body, basically remain on earth to help minister to the um, to the Philippians. But he said, "Maybe I'm going to go. Maybe I'm going to maybe I'm going to stay. Whatever happens, for me to live is Christ. All right. While I'm here, if I remain in the body, God's going to be glorified in my flesh. He's going to be glorified. But here he's saying, but even if I don't again." But even if this is the end for me, 
So let me read some 2 Timothy for y'all as well, where Paul uses this drink offering thing uh, phrase. Now, 2 Timothy is most likely, almost everyone believes that this is the last book that Paul wrote before he died. This is the second time he's imprisoned in Rome. They believe that in Philippians, while he's in Rome, he gets let out, he goes to Spain, then he comes back. And in the middle 60s, 65-ish, 66, somewhere in there, 64, 65, 66, that's where he writes 2 Timothy again. And uh, he's in the Mamertime dungeon. So he writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, sorry, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So you can see there in 2 Timothy, when Paul's using the drink offering thing as the last part of the uh, sacrificial ceremony, he's like, this is it, 2 Timothy. I'm, I know it's done now. In Philippians, He's like, I don't think it's done. I think I got a ways to go. But even if I have to go now, even if this is the last act for me, I'm going to rejoice because I know it's going to be for the progress of the gospel. And I know that you're participating in the gospel. And I know that we're going to advance the gospel, whether in my life or in death. For Paul, that's what this is all about. His life is all about advancing the gospel, participating in the gospel, helping others progress in the gospel. That's what he's about. And that's why he has joy because joy, rejoicing, is recognizing God's grace being active in a situation. The recognition, the awareness that God is moving in a situation, that's what rejoicing is all about. It's not necessarily happiness. It's just recognizing like Paul would write in Romans 8, how all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Basically, all things are working to shape me to be more like Christ. And our, God, will, God will cause these bad situations to actually advance his purpose in us and in the world. So I want to show you a parallel passage that I think it explains this Philippians 2 passage so well. It explains um, working out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in us for his good pleasure. It shows how grumbling and disputing is not going to help us prove to be um, righteous and uh, blameless, innocent children of God in the midst of a corrupt and perverse generation. Um, 
It shows how we hold fast or hold forth the word of life. And it shows being poured out as a drink offering for the progression, the progress, um, the furthering, the advancement of the gospel and how that leads, if that's our purpose too, that will lead us to rejoicing. All right, so this passage is a long one, but it starts in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and it goes from verse 17 of chapter 3 to verse 15 of chapter 4. And just to set this up a little bit, uh, Paul is talking in chapter 3 about how Moses, when Moses would interact with God in, in the, the tent of meeting, he would come out with a shining face so much that he would have to veil his face. All right? And Paul is going to make a comparison to that and say, we have an even better ministry than, than Moses because the Holy Spirit would like come upon Moses for a while and cause him to shine. But the Holy Spirit has come in to us to transform us, to hold forth the word of life and, the, and to shine like a light in the world. All right, so I'm going to start in verse 17 and, um, of chapter 3 and read to verse 15 of chapter 4, and then we're just going to pray. All right, so here we go. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels and jars of clay, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God and not from ourselves. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm going to read verse 7 again. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. 
always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. New moon in the forest, faintest of light. Is that more than enough for my need? As I stumble in darkness, try as I might again, I'm falling down on my knees. But a change in perspective can change everything, maybe down in. It's not so bad If it's where I can meet you It's worth anything For eternity's view It's what lasts This distressing confusion Is good for my soul Cause my heart's full of slander and lies For oh, you know what you're doing Get me back home, I belong with my father of lights You change my name to a kingdom forever at peace Cause a limp in my gate is a trade I would take For your patience to pour out of me I don't wanna be governed by fear anymore May your righteousness rule in my heart May your gentleness guide me and love lead me on May I follow from dusk until dawn 